Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. My name's John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic, and today I'm going to be talking to Wendy Mitchell, who is a writer, film writer as, as well, and a former editor of Screen, one of the biggest international trade magazines for movies. She's also the author of Citizen Canine, which we'll be talking about, and a up-and-coming book on Icelandic cinema. If you enjoyed the podcast, please remember to like, subscribe, and spread the word. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I... I had such fun writing the book, obviously. I hope that comes through. Um, but I had such fun re-watching films, kind of looking at it, not necessarily the dog's point of view, but just, just watching the dog more than anything. And um, it was a really interesting way to watch some classic films. And I was really lucky. I found the right publisher, which was Lawrence King in the UK. You know, they really understood that this was not going to be an academic tome, obviously. We're not aiming for the Pulitzer with dogs in the movies, but they understood that it was going to be fun, but not silly. And they understood the, why I needed to have Umberto D in the, in the book. Um, and, you know, they didn't push me to make it sort of lowest common denominator, isn't this dog cute? So, yeah, I, I really found the right people who got what I 
I had had in mind of what I wanted to do. I really like the way it's structured as well, that you have a sort of this historical perspective. We were, I was talking to Pamela Hutchinson on a, a previous podcast, and she talked about how silent cinema, there's a real point where the dog being in the picture on purpose is like a, a, a watershed moment for silent cinema, you know, because it's not just capturing what's out there. It's actually, no, we're, we're really making making something in front of the camera here. Yeah, I listened to Pamela's interview with you and I, you know, I'm not worthy to be on this podcast after somebody like her, but you know, the the book starts out with Chaplin's A Dog's Life from 1918 and then we do 100 years since then. But you know, I think in silent cinema especially you can there's such physical comedy and you know, just watching A Dog's Life that this dog can match Chaplin for physical comedy. And, it, you know, they work really beautifully together. And yeah, it was just a, a delight sort of rediscovering, you know, Chaplin alongside, you know, Mutt, uh, the dog, <laughs> um, who worked very well with him and, you know, later is said to have died of a broken heart because Chaplin, they really bonded during the shoot. And then Chaplin went on a tour selling war bonds and Mutt stopped eating because he missed Chaplin so much. And they said he died of a broken heart, John. I don't know if this is myth, uh, Hollywood myth, but um, I, I like, no, I don't like the fact that the dog died of a broken heart, but it's, you know, one of those wonderful sort of legends of old Hollywood. It's also wonderful that Chaplin doesn't have the cane in this particular picture because he has to keep keep the so the dog sort of becomes part of his iconography as well. Yeah, it's kind of he couldn't have the cane because he has to hold the lead, the leash mm. um, of the dog. And you know, for people wondering, I think you can if the Chaplin estate isn't actively shutting it down. They're quite um, keen on their copyrights. Um, but, you know, you can find something like this on YouTube, usually, just to go watch it. And it's it's very special. I, I like the way in your introduction, you talk about W.C. Fields and the famous quotation about you don't work with animals uh, or children. And you you point out that the last part of that quotation is the one that's not quoted, which is because they'll upstage you. And so, you know, it's that that idea that in a dog's life, Chaplin sort of dog, sorry, what's the name of the dog again? Mutt. Mutt, Mutt gives Mutt. Chaplin a real run for his money in terms of performance and, and cuteness and everything. I should say the dog's name in the film is Scraps. Right. But the real dog's name is Mutt, we think. But yeah, I mean, he lets the dog upstage him sometimes. And, you know, it's right there in the title. But there's some beautiful sort of poignant, if you stop and think about it, just a poignant setup that, you know, here's this street dog. Here's this street tramp. Um, you know, they're both sort of down on their luck. They're doing what they can to survive. And Chaplin was very careful in casting the dog that he, you know, he was shown all these, you know, beautiful groomed dogs that the studios wanted to use and he was like no 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 I need like a a, a mutt a mixed breed um yeah. and that's what he got and those I mean those dogs then became very sort of became a very popular part of, of the film I mean I remember uh, the, the another one that you put I think it might even be the, just the second one in the uh in the book um Rintin Tin which I, for some reason I I sort of have the name in my head, Rintintin, but I've never actually seen a film or, but it's like, I think I must have heard it quoted in popular culture. Yeah, I mean, Rintintin was the star of his day. You know, he got, I mean, just, I'm trying to think of how many fan letters a month. It was like 50,000 fan letters a month and was better paid than some human actors. And what 
just phenomenal. And I had, like you, I had sort of known the name and I was like, have I seen one of these films? Because some of them are sort of out of print or hard to find. But I will say that Rent and Ten, if we're talking about Rent and Ten, we have to mention great writer from The New Yorker, Susan Orlean, wrote an entire biography of Rent and Ten. Oh my God. You need to get her on the pod. Um, And it's just, I read it on holiday and it's just like a page turner. It's really fascinating. But I went back and rewatch some of the clips. I mean, and this dog is like running up a tree. This is not CGI talking dog cuteness. This dog was such a physical performer. And yeah, it was like huge business Mm. for studios. You know, this was a Hollywood legend. And I think it's kind of hard for us today to even imagine that. But dogs like Ren 1010 and Strongheart later, and then, you know, Lassie, they were sort of box office gold. People went for the dog. I don't think we would see that today. So I think it can be hard for us to get our heads around like this was the star. The mm. dog was the star. Mm. Or, in, or or even say the horse. You know, I remember Champion the Wonder Horse and yes. uh, Ed the Talking Horse. And was it Ed the Talking Horse? There was well I know that yeah there's there was Francis the Talking Mule, wow. which I loved when I was growing up. But yeah, I think there's Mr. Ed. Yeah. Well, speaking about growing up, I mean, where what what was your sort of first connection with like animals in films? Is it something you've always sort of as a kid growing up, or is it something that you you got interested in later when you maybe you got your own dog, or how how did you when can you remember yeah. first watching that 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 interface between those two things? Yeah. Well, this is sacrilege, but I remember loving that darn cat. When I was little, that Disney film, I, as you may have guessed already, I didn't study film academically ever, but I loved films growing up. Mm. Um, And, you know, we had dogs. We had a really great Dotsund, a little obese Dotsund called Snickers that I loved to pieces. And I think I in England, in England, he would have been called Marathon. Uh, Yes. Well, has he been rebranded? (laughs) And I took a more serious path with writing about film. You know, I was editor of Screen International which is the trade business magazine about the film industry. But, I, you know, I sort of rethought of it then. It's like I noticed like anytime we would have pages and pages of, you know, like film screening listings and the production editor would say, oh, do you want this picture or this picture? I would sort of, they would sort of make fun of me because I would tend to choose a picture if I had like a cute animal. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, you do know which magazine. This is not Horse and Hound. You know, you know, you're working for Screen International. And it was sort of alongside this, I think it was about 2005, yeah, or maybe six, 2005, 2006, I was attending the American film market in LA and they were promoting an upcoming remake of Lassie and they had the canine actor coming around and there was a publicist, let's give him credit, Dennis Dembia and Rogers and Cowan brought this beautiful dog to our office at screen and they he had the dog like pose with us and the dog put the dog's name was hey hey and he put his little paw on my leg and I just fell in love and then I learned that hey hey was a direct descendant of pal who played lassie in the 40s and that I don't know it sort of got me thinking of wow um there's such a rich Hollywood history with dogs and I couldn't believe nobody had ever done a book really mm. um 
And so, yeah, that was all sort of in my mind. And then, you know, I met Toby Rose, who runs the Palm Dog and the Fido Awards. And he'd asked me to be on the jury of the Palm Dog and Cannes, which is great fun. And all of this was kind of coming together. And at the point when I was leaving the editorship at Screen, I decided to step down and focus on some other projects and do some freelancing. And I just thought, what would be really fun to sort of clear my head? Mm. What would I really just love doing? And so, so I pitched this book and, you know, just getting to look at pictures and films of dogs and write about them. Um, yeah, it was just perfect time to do something like that when I was leaving. You know, we write a lot about, you know, what's the tax credit in Manitoba to get this film financed? Oh, that's and my favorite article. Exciting stuff. That was my favorite article of screen. Yes, that. my goodness. Um, you know, we do talk to directors and producers and actors and everything else. But, you know, it is a more serious Sure. publication. And yeah, this sort of cleared my head and I loved it. It was just fun. Thinking about what you were saying just earlier as well. I mean, I remember growing up in the in the 70s and 80s and our TV and films and I mean a lot of things like Lassie went from film to TV, didn't didn't it? And we also had all those African shows like Daktari and uh sort of Safari, Born Free and all that sort of stuff. Mm. We seem to be much more engaged with the animal world than than maybe we are today. I mean, do, do you think that's true? That, or... Yeah, and the, sort of in the 70s, yeah, you did go, I mean, Benji was a superstar, as you mentioned, you know, like really big business, Benji. And one of the most successful, I think before like Blair Witch came along, one of the most profitable sort of low budget features because, oh, Mr. Higgins, I think his name was, that had Benji, took the idea to the studios and they all rejected it. And so he made the film on his own for no money, really. And then, wow, it took off. And, you know, Alfred Hitchcock said he loved Benji, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I love to picture, you know, Hitch sitting back in a private screening room watching Benji. But yeah, I think in that sort of 70s, especially 70s, 80s, maybe there was some great animal films. And yeah, I mean, I, I remember stuff like Born Free and yeah, it feels like maybe now they're seen as a little, maybe more silly or not. Maybe you get them more CGI'd or of course you have like the David Attenborough Planet Earth type nature documentaries, which are mm. amazing. But I don't think we're seeing as much of like how we as human beings interact with pets and, and other animals. And maybe that'll come back. I mean, everybody and their sister got a dog during lockdown. So maybe we'll start to to see more of that. You know, who yeah, knows? The, the perfect lockdown movie would be someone with a new dog trying to make sourdough pastries and, and bread. There you go. Um, and, you know, I have to plug Annie from 1982, that version of Annie. And I just, I mean, I must have watched that film a hundred times uh, growing up. And Sandy, I mean, Sandy's a big part of that story. And he gets a whole, he gets the whole song. Right, you know, he gets right. serenaded by the little girls um, with Dumb Dog, which I could sing for you now. But if you've heard my speaking voice, you really don't want to hear my singing voice. No, I, I, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll count you no, in. I, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was one of the delights of looking through your book was there were so many films and dogs, which I... I remember being a huge part of my life, but I've sort of forgotten about. I mean, Digby, the biggest dog in the world, being English, that was on every single holiday, every bank holiday that movie showed. Uh, like it was a, it's a wonderful life sort of rate of repetition. And I'd totally forgotten about it. But yeah, Jimmy yeah. Dale and and his uh, and his huge, <laughs> rather silly King Kong sized dog. 
I mean, I I have to say because I'm America, I grew up in America, obviously, and I moved to the UK what about 16 years ago or so. So Digby did not cross the pond into my consciousness as a young person. Shocking, shocking that I can't believe it. Amazing um, quality. You know what did American children miss out on? But when I mentioned the book, you know, one of my colleagues when I was working at British Council on the film team, Rachel Roby, was like, "Oh well, of course you're gonna have you could put Digby on the cover," and I was like, "What's a?" Digby. And she was just in shock that I didn't know about Digby. Digby is obviously wonderfully silly. I would not say the visual effects are up to modern standards, let's say, John, but, you know, great fun. And I can see if you're like a six-year-old now, you would still love it. You know, I think it would hold up to watch it if somebody grew up watching it and is sort of middle-aged and could watch it with their kids, it'll be great fun. So yeah, I got to discover Digby for the first time. I wonder if Digby's special effects will hold up it's hold up better than sort of the CGI Call of the Wild Harrison Ford film, which features, well, not an animal performer, but an, I think an entire entire CGI creation. Am I right? Or is You're that- right. Yeah. And funnily, the, that is not in the book. It came out, you know, a little bit after I had to mm. my press deadline, but... Funnily enough, we had a dog, bring your dog along screening at Picture Owl Central to promote, you know, and launch the book, which was really good fun. And the dogs are very well behaved. But because of the sort of timing, that was the film we showed. And I Mm. sort of thought, this is a little bit ironic that we're celebrating these real canine actors throughout history. And yet we're seeing this animatronic buck and i i think that dog i think the whole time i was watching that dog i just thought this is not real this is not real it just doesn't have a soul sorry i was not a huge fan i mean the film did not do that well i don't think you know i wasn't a huge fan of yeah how that dog looked and i i think harrison ford gives a fine performance i don't think it's a career best but you know i think maybe you can tell he's not it's something like beginners with ewan mcgregor mm. He bonded with that dog. And I think you can see that in the film. There's like a real connection. And I think you can't see that if the dog is made by a computer, you know. Yeah, the uncanny valley seems deeper for animals than it does for people because people can act a bit robotic anyway, but animals (laughs) have no clue what, what... That, that just does it exist in their conceptual sort of uh, minds, you know? So yeah, I don't really agree with the whole animatronic dog, but it was wonderful to watch that. It was funny to see that film with a bunch of real dogs in the cinema and there were no accidents, I should mm-hmm. say. That was my second, um, second very question. Very well behaved. And, you know, the minute they saw this dog on screen, they all kind of were quiet and just watching and, you know, I think they were curious. Maybe they saw the Uncanny Valley, like, who is this imposter amongst our midst? This isn't a real dog. Um, but yeah, they were very well behaved to watch him. Oh, I'm glad about that. Uh, as much for the staff as for anything else. <laughs> I know. I always thought this quite brave doing like a dog screening in this beautiful new cinema with these amazing seats. And you now each dog gets a blanket they can sit on if they want. And they, I mean, I was shocked at how well behaved they were. Is, is that a very common thing now in uh, in sort of London cinemas? or? Yeah, they, I mean, Picture House, I think, does it, you know, maybe a couple of times a year. Mm-hmm. I think they did one for Isle of Dogs. It's a fun thing. And I will say, in the course of talking about the book, I met some of these doggy influencer people, and they are um, passionate shall we say about their dogs and taking them to places and but even if you know my friend Fen Halligan, who you might know is a 
reviews editor at Screen, she came and brought her little dots and, and was, you know, she's not like a crazy dog lady or anything. And they thoroughly enjoyed it, I think. Wendy Eyed brought her her big dog, who's uh, Moxie. Moxie, and, yeah. I've met yeah, Moxie. They were all very, very well behaved. And yeah, you get sort of the dog crazy people. And then you get, I think, a few normal people who think this could be funny to take my dog to the cinema. And yeah, it was. Do you think we're making a mistake by only programming films about dogs, though? Maybe dogs are like, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I didn't, I never wanted to see a film with with kids in. I never got that yeah. Goonies thing. I wanted to see films like Red's Lost Ark with adults. I didn't want to be talked down to. So do you think dogs are going, oh, why do they keep showing us films about dogs? We want to see films about bones. That may be a good point. Or, or you know, a film about people running on a beach. <laughs> or people digging. Or 2001 you know. A Space Odyssey, just the bone going up in the air again and again. <laughs> oh my god i haven't thought about that yeah that could be a really a good fit yeah because i think there are sort of videos you can put on for your dog when you leave the house mm. and things like that and maybe that is not just watching other dogs because that can kind of disrupt them i think what watching other dogs maybe they want to interact with the dog or jump on your tv or something but yeah maybe a nice meadow they can run through or mm. a big bowl of steak or something might be there dream viewing do you think the way the dogs have, uh, the, the way things have changed and thinking again of call of the wild bringing in cgi do you think this is something to do with just animal performers being you know that the, the, there are problems that studios are unwilling to get into when it comes to animal performers maybe audiences aren't as comfortable anymore with seeing a trained animal they assume you know that there might be some cruelty involved in that training maybe wrongly assume that yeah, yeah, I think it's a really good point. I'm so glad you brought that up because it was something I was even conscious of, like, should I even be writing this book? You know, it, have these dogs been mistreated? And from what I, from the animal trainers I talked to who are just amazing at their jobs, I really love their jobs and love these dogs. They pick the right dog for the right job and they're not making a dog do anything they're uncomfortable with. You know, a lot of them, the dogs live with them like family, you know, and they know the dog personality inside and out and they know to get him to jump over here you might want to do this and I, I didn't hear any stories of dogs in duress and and harm's way um because that yeah would freak me out and make me abandon the book but yeah I think people like Peter are against of course against dogs acting they're also against I think um and double check me they're they're against guide dogs for the blind Right. They just think animals can just be animals without serving humans in any way. I can see that stance, but uh, for me, hearing like the dogs really love, they love to, dogs like to work, most of them. And if they understand what they're meant to do and they're being well-treated and they get a lot of love. Men mentioning this dog that was on the set of Beginners with Ewan McGregor, it was a great trainer called Mathilde DeCagney, who's a wonderful animal trainer in LA and she's worked with a lot of terriers over the year including the dog who played Eddie on Fraser on TV oh wow yeah so she I'm really, starstruck I know, <laughs> I'm she just... really knows her dogs and she like, she let you and just bond with that dog so much that by the time they're doing kind of scenes where they're on like a bed together and he's talking to the dog she wasn't even in the room that was you and loving that dog and in fact the day the shoot wrapped you and went to go rescue his own dog 
dog, even though someone in his family might be a little bit allergic, he got the right kind of breed because he was just like, I've fallen so in love with this dog. I can't not have a dog. And then while he was in LA, he used to go on walks with his dog and this dog from Beginners. So sort of happy, happy stories. But yeah, I can see how there was a couple of years ago and gosh, I'm forgetting the film title. Uh, was it a dog's life or a dog's journey or a dog's purpose or one of those, I think, you know, a video leaked that seemed to show a dog in peril. I actually talked to the the producers and the trainers who'd work with that dog and saying, you know, that video was sort of manipulated. And there was an independent review that said, I think from the RSPCA or the Humane Society to say that no dogs were in trouble in that shoot. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's something very much in our mind. And I'm blanking on the Japanese film that had a lot of cats and dogs. It was maybe in the 90s or early 2000s. And I didn't include it in the book because there are still some rumors that maybe a cat was mistreated on that set. And I just thought, you know what? I'm not going to promote that film because, and, you know, I don't want to libel or slander anyone, but, you know, I can't, I don't have the resources to investigate that. But yeah, I think it's very much on people's minds. But I think, I think it's also, you know, a tribute to real dogs doing a job well, enjoying their work and, you know, being in a very loving environment on a set. But like you said, also studios realize, I mean, I don't think a studio would have made White God, uh, the Mm. Hungarian film, which we know from Cannes, that had 250 real dogs. And that there's such an investment of time, of money in training those dogs. And, you know, in the book, Todd Solon says like, oh my God, we had these Dotsons, maybe not the greatest dog lover, but he said these Dotsons from Wiener dog were so stupid that to get 30 seconds of usable footage we had to film them on a treadmill for like four hours it it takes some it takes time and patience and investment and and it's yeah they're not human you can't guarantee they're going to hit their mark every time and so yeah I think it's probably a combination of yeah we maybe people are slightly more uncomfortable with like seeing a trained dog having to act for their pleasure and also just the the money and the time right yeah absolutely i mean in terms of exploitation in terms of history and all that sort of stuff yeah you you have to put it also in context of everybody being exploited to some extent you you made the great point that toto in the wizard of oz is paid more than the munchkins so yeah like that yeah the the munchkin actors were not paid very well toto broke his paw on the set uh, terrible and probably for health and safety that would just wouldn't be able to happen today but Higgins no it's not Higgins I'm getting my dogs confused it's a Cairn Terrier Terry is the dog's real name Terry got was so bonded with Judy Garland he got to go recuperate at Judy Garland's house for a couple (laughs) weeks so he was stepped on by one of the wicked witches guardsmen evidently so two weeks of recuperation so in character yes I mean I I would like to recuperate at Judy Garland's house for two weeks. Sounds good. But yeah, I think health and safety has greatly improved. And, you know, I even wonder today, would Ren 1010 be allowed to run up a tree? Probably not. Or how do you train the dog to do that safely? So yeah, even more amazing that we get to see these physical feats of the past because we might not be able to see them in present day. Yeah, absolutely. There are some, I mean, when it comes to the treatment of animals as well, I think it's, I think horses seem to get the worst of the, of, in terms of Hollywood, I'm thinking of all those epic Westerns and, and sort of epic films generally, the, the Ben-Hurs mm-hmm. and, the, and the whatnots. 
talking you've you, we've, we've talked a, a little bit and used the phrase sort of animal actor animal performer i wanted to ask you this question i know there are great animal actors because i you know you see the film and you go oh that's that dog is amazing in in that role are there any bad animal actors are there any times you watch a movie and you go that dog was very disappointing <laughs> That wasn't because uh, I have one, so I'll give you one later. If uh... I'm sure I can come up with something, um, yeah. I mean, what I do like is like, and maybe you know, some hardcore <laughs> cinephiles and historians might say she's lost the plot, but I do think some dogs can emote on screen. I think dogs have emotions, you know, when they're with human beings. You know, something like Benji, I think, can look excited when he's running, can look lovingly at somebody, and it's. And of course I'm projecting a bit, which is why we like animals in the films. But I also think sometimes you can capture a genuine emotion from an animal on screen and they are acting. Sometimes it is Hooch acting. I don't know. He's just kind of slobbering and walking around. Does he feel anything for Tom Hanks? I'm not sure. Sorry, Tom. Uh, you you, uh, you have to t- uh, you have to tell uh, the listeners what the slobber was made of as well, because that was a particularly, <laughs> particularly good detail. Yeah, so don't worry, that slobber is just egg whites. Yes. But it's still, I mean, it's just a bit gross. That was played by, Hooch was played by a dog named Beasley. And Beasley lived to 14, you know, 98 in human years. And it's a breed, you know, a, a dog de Bordeaux that doesn't usually live that long. So Beasley had a good life. And, you know, Tom Hanks has said he wish, I'm not going to spoil it, but he wishes the film had ended perhaps differently now. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a terrible dog actor, and I'm sure I saw many. Yeah, no, no, I think I have a soft spot for a lot of them in the book. I mean, I did watch films that didn't make it into the book. Or, you know, some of those dogs and like cats and dogs, not a cinematic triumph, let's let's face it. But like right. some of those dogs just look like they're hitting their mark. They don't look like they're interacting. They're phoning it in. Yeah, exactly. But thankfully, I'll, I'll, yeah, what's your I'll tell you my one. Yes. I'll tell you my one. Uh, and I, I, I'm willing to, to accept the wrath of because uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit a few sacred cows here I think a Maldivar's short film that he made in lockdown with Tilda Swinton I was so unconvinced by that dog mm. I thought the dog was I'm not sure if he was unprepared or or what what the situation was but he wasn't getting the right direction yeah uh, oh Almodovar fighting words yeah yeah I just think I just think uh, yeah and Tilda of course was the winner of this year's Palm Dog so I'm I'm really going after. I'm, I'm on. I'm treading on dangerous ground here, but but it just it, it was funny. I mean, I say this sort of in a, in a maybe slightly flippant way, but at the same time, it's kind of it's kind of funny when you see something and you just say, well, "That's kind of not working." They, can, I, you know, it's not necessarily the dog's fault, but they just haven't. Just having a dog doesn't automatically make it a wonderful dog. No, and I I'm glad you say this because I think that is what the whole idea of the book was to pay tribute for the dogs that did a good job. I mean, even like, gosh, you know, I can't stand Adam Sandler and Mr. Beefy and little Nicky just is the best thing about the film to me. And he's quite funny. And I was like, okay, I, I, this film is no good. Or to me, it's not, you know, a good film, but Mr. Beefy is really good. And let's honor him without having to honor the rest of it. But yeah, I think sometimes it just doesn't work. It, they're either phoned in, like you said, or just maybe somebody decides to use, yeah, their own dog and it doesn't work. But I mean, there's wonderful examples of people using their own dogs. 
not just Tilda with the souvenir too, our Palm Dog 2021 winner in Cannes. I mean, I Kelly Reichardt is one of my favorite filmmakers and that's her dog, Lucy, in Wendy and Lucy. Kelly very graciously talked to me for the book. I've interviewed her about more serious things um, in the past, but she, I think she was really happy to talk about Lucy and Lucy was comfortable on that set. It wasn't just a dog flown in. Lucy and Michelle Williams bonded. I think you can see sort of you know also Lucy is not made to like do a bunch of tricks Lucy is just allowed to be a dog on screen but in a kind of a natural way and that's I mean I think you can get wonderful performances out of a filmmaker or an actor's own dog but yeah making not making them jump through literal hoops Perhaps Lucy may have not been able to do that, but Lucy was a great dog on screen and she's no longer with us. RIP Lucy. But yeah, Kelly Reichardt really enjoyed working because Lucy, I think, had also been in Old Joy in a right. smaller role. But yeah, I think that's wonderful. I, I loved Wendy and Lucy. I, I literally watched that this week for the first time. And uh, I just thought that was such a, such a great film. Oh, it's beautiful. And such, you know, with a lot of Kelly's films, such a sort of light touch, not so heavy handed and just, um, yeah, beautiful performances. And just, I think that does show this bond between human and animal that I get almost goosebumps talking about. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Got it. I'm a bit silly, but we we love our dogs. They can come. I mean, for for Wendy in that film, that is her family, is Lucy. Yeah. And I know a lot of people like that with their dogs. And I like to see that on screen. Yeah, it's kind of her last connection to the world mm. almost, isn't it? It's her last, even though she's out, out of the world. It reminded me a little bit of another film that you include in the, in the book, Umberto Di, the Italian new wave mm. sort of classic. And, and again, it's about an old man. Well, in this case, an old man, but it's about someone on the margins of society. Yeah dealing with poverty and and his only really fully satisfactory relationship is with his dog. Yeah, no, I, I love, I think this film is just wonderful and powerful and sort of classic of Italian neorealism, as you say, but the dog performance or just that relationship, you know, it was really important for me to have that, this film and the book, you know, kids don't know it. And well, that was also the hope that, you know, somebody might buy it for their kid thinking, oh, my kid loves Lassie, I'll buy them this book or my kid loves Beethoven and then discover, oh, well, this one is maybe not for kids, but you know, what a wonderful sounding film. And yeah, his relationship with Flyke is so important. And, you know, at the end, 
I'm not going to spoil that one either, but Flake is there for him at the end. He, you know, won't leave him alone and uh, just really powerful. And would that, it would have been powerful in a different way if he had a best human friend. That would just be a different relationship. And I think we can, we can project so many feelings onto that man-dog relationship. And God, yeah, I just love that film. I want to rewatch that this week, even just talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, with Umberto D and with Wendy and Lucy both, it's about people who have, have kind of, for better or worse, sort of failed in the world mm. or, or are some, somehow pushed out of the world. And so here is a non-human, in the human world, I want to say, and yeah. here is a non-human who gives them something that the, that the human world just can't give them. Yeah, we see this, that sort of unjudgmental, sort of unconditional love that you might get from an animal, especially a dog. Maybe a cat doesn't give a shit so much. <laughs> but yeah, well, I think, a, yeah. There was a film with a, a street cat named Bob, I think, oh, was... Yeah. Uh, was um, but maybe that's the exception that proves it. No, I, I, well, John, I have pitched the cat, the feline equivalent. I don't know if the publisher is biting. I want to call it once more with feline. And oh. maybe this will happen someday. I mean, but there's, you know, a good cat in, I mean, of course, Inside Lewin Davis has that amazing cat. That's so good. You know, going back to Breakfast at Tiffany's. So yeah, I, I also, and this can be controversial to dog people. I also like cats. I grew up with cats and dogs, but I think I think there'll be less sort of good stories about cats. Sorry, cat people. I mean, I, I hope to. Oh, cat do people! It. There's another one. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, cat from outer space. Yes, and as I mentioned, that darn cat. I mean, there's, there's. I've already got a list. I'm ready, but I think the cats can be, yeah, harder to maybe even find out this is sort of historical information about the cats. I think there's going to be slightly less interesting stories, but I hope you know. I think maybe if I did that book, that'll be a little bit more of just some amazing pictures and a sort of tribute to the the film and the role of the cat within the film, maybe less about the actual cat who played the role. <laughs> I mean, would, would you have cat trainers? I mean, do, do, oh, does yeah. such a thing yeah, yeah. exist? Well, I don't, did you catch the innocence in Can? Yes, I did, yes. Okay, so something not nice happens to a cat in that film. Yes, very not nice. And weirdly, I was on set, I was in, happened to be in Norway when they were shooting, so I went to the set one day in Oslo, and I happened to be there the day that the cat and the cat trainer or cat wrangler was there, and that wasn't even a Norwegian, I forget where it was, it German or something? They couldn't find the right cat in all of Norway so they had to go you know they get the right cat and the right trainer to come in but I just think the phrase herding cats you know I think a cat is much harder to train so right. when we do yeah. see a good cat performance yeah I think that's even harder to get so yeah but there are certainly cat trainers out there that's a job I wouldn't I mean I have a cat I have two cats now my I mean my relationship with animals is very I I like them I like, you know, I don't wish them any harm. I'm quite happy to have them around, but I'm a bit Werner Herzog when it comes to my relationship. You know, I see nothing in the eyes but despair. You know, I'm that sort of, I don't have such a much a, a sort of romantic relationship, shall I say? Yeah, I think that, I think the cat, I mean, cats are so independent, as we know. And yeah, I think it, it's a different 
the, the bond between cats and humans is very different, as we know. So I, I think it would be yeah, a different exploration if we're talking about cats in cinema. But yeah, I have a soft spot for, for any animal films, you know, uh, lambs in lamb and, you know. Right, another um, film. And rams. Rams and sheep. And, you know, I love Icelandic cinema. I, just, I could do a whole thing about, you know, sheep in the, their role in Icelandic cinema. Yeah, I, I like a lot of animal films i maybe it makes me a bit soft but well i don't know because i mean me. looking at the looking at the films that you've included in this book you do have white dog uh you do have white god you do have well one i had to fight to include was cujo oh of course yes cujo which is a brilliant because um okay this you know th- we knew this book wasn't for kids so we could include films that aren't for kids but cujo i did a lot of the photo research myself and you know we had to include there are some films that aren't in there because there weren't good images of the dog in the film fair enough but with Cujo you know there's a lot of cool stills but most of them show very rabid Cujo drooling bloody horrible you know and it just that's got to be egg egg white and tomato sauce yeah egg white again yeah it's not real blood but if you're flipping through the book it's kind of like oh lassie oh god (laughs) um and so the publisher was like can you find us a picture where Cujo maybe a pre-Cujo and so I think the shot we use is maybe from the opening of the film and it's just sort of the back of Cujo looking over the valley innocent you you might think this is a cute dog so that was but yeah and funnily enough with White Dog very disturbing film by Mm. Samuel Fuller I mean beautiful filmmaking such an allegory of racism and funnily enough we've got cuddly pictures of that dog snuggling up to Kirsty McCall Kirsty McNichol I'm getting my Kirsties maybe confused um (laughs) And it looks very cuddly in the pictures we chose for that, which probably doesn't represent the film so well, but picture looks nice. And then if you read about the film in the book, I think you'll understand this one. It's not a cute dog for kids. And I have to say, I love the story that Sam Fuller was going on holiday. They were, you know, greenlit to to start shooting after his holiday. And while he was away, the the studio hired the dog trainer and the dog. And they, this is typical studio. Boffin said, oh, it's called White Dog, so we're going to get a white dog. Right. And, you know, it's a German Shepherd, I think. And Sam Fuller was like, I didn't mean it. The dog needed to be white, um, you idiots. But funnily enough, the dog looks so good on screen because, you know, shooting darker dogs can be really hard just in terms of lighting and and cinematography. So the white dog actually looks really good. But the typical like studio note, very literal, we need a white dog, you know. (laughs) Um, The other sort of genre stuff, because you, you you know, you obviously have the cop films, which came out quite close together. It was a little bit of a Dante's Peak volcano moment where you got. Yeah, sort of canine and then. And uh, Turner and Hooch, yeah, yeah, great cop films, brilliant, yeah, absolutely. And then you, and then you get your, your sort. Of, I, I actually wrote an article, so this is, uh, this is a way of me plugging my own stuff as well for, for a, a website that I think is defunct, so maybe not. But um, I wrote a piece about how all apocalyptic films have a dog in them. And I Am Legend is obviously one. Oh, Will Smith and I Am Legend, you know, I think. But that adds such, doesn't that, weirdly, the dog adds the humanity to that film for a lot of it. He's more upset by, spoiler, he's more upset by the dog getting uh, bitten by, than when his entire family gets wiped out. He's sort of like... 
I mean, he's a, obviously he's still upset, but when the dog goes, yeah. it's like, oh, that's the last straw. That is the last straw. This yeah. is when I'm really upset. Yeah, it's, but yeah, because it's sort of that dog is the innocent. And again, we're projecting mm. sort of human feelings and anthropomorphism. I can never say that word onto the the animal, but it's about that bond. And, you know, this is his companion, his loyal companion forever for the rest of time. He's got Abby and what happens and that's it. Like, no, you can't take my dog. Right. Uh, but yeah, Will Smith loved that that dog. They went on dates before shooting to sort of get to know each other. And then, of course, at the end, again, at the end, Will Smith wanted to adopt that dog. And, you know, because, you know, when you visit a film set, you do see each each crew becomes like a family for each film. And it's sort of like you're ripped apart. You'll never be together again after that last day of shooting. Oh. And you can understand that, like, yeah, if you're there with a dog every day and then suddenly no dog. But the trainer loved the dog too much and part of his family. So he didn't let Will Smith have the dog. It's like an on-set romance almost. Yeah, exactly. What happens on set, you know. That's to stay on set in this case, in that case. Um, one of the apocalyptic films that I was thinking of when, because, you know, there's a dog in the road as well. And, but there's oh, a, yeah. a film, A Boy and His Dog, the uh, a very, very young Don Johnson. Have you ever, have you seen that? You know, it's on my list um, to see, but I ha- I've never seen it. Um, but I think it's in my Amazon Prime queue or something. Um, but yeah, I never, there, I, I have to admit, you know, I made a list when I started the book of about, I don't know, 500 films. And it became clear maybe I would watch, I would pick out sort of 150 of those to actually watch and figure out the final sort of 100 or 80 in the book. But yeah, I've missed some good ones. Um, no, so. I mean, I wouldn't say it's like an essential thing, but I remember, I think it was on a movie drone, which was a sort of BBC Two Alex Cox introducing cult movies series in the in in the 80s and 90s. And he explained that it's a Harlan Ellison short story where the dog is has telepathic qualities because of the nuclear fallout. And so that the dog and the boy communicate all the way through the film. And they were saying Walt Disney wanted, the Disney company wanted to buy it so that it would sort of like, they'd have an animatronic uh, uh-huh. sort of dog but they didn't do that in the end they didn't bother lip syncing but it's a re- it's it's a problematic film more because of its gender uh politics uh-huh. nowadays it's one of those you probably say oh lovely dog and great relationship and then oh how he treats the women not not quite so good yeah no there's probably you know there's so many of those films but yeah i will i like to as you can probably tell now i will watch anything with a dog in it so yeah i look forward to checking that out brilliant you, know, you mentioned earlier as well uh about about your being interested in Icelandic, mm. uh, in Iceland, and and how did that interest come about? It's hard to even say. I just, I, I was still living in New York and writing for IndieWire at the time, and I got invited to the Reykjavik International Film Festival. And this must have been at least, God, it probably was about 18 or 20 years ago, maybe 18, 19 years ago. And I went for a sort of long weekend and just fell in love with the place and the filmmakers I met there. And I've been really lucky. I've probably been to Iceland about 15 times since then, either to riff uh, that festival or to Stockfish, which is another festival, or to visit film shooting or just kind of for fun. And I just am obsessed with the place. I think it's like nowhere 
else on earth. And it fascinates me, their cinema, that, of course, there were some very, very early films, you know, maybe in the sort of 20s, 30s, 40s, mostly shorts, but their sort of real cinematic tradition sort of picks up again in the 70s with the Raven films and then Friedrich Thor Friedrichsen, who, you know, is still very much alive and active. And I just thought it's kind of fascinating to see a cinematic nation that is very influential today. And yet everybody that's worked in it is still alive. You know, I can go talk to them. <laughs> um, and it does, you know, we, we don't have that luxury in some other places, but just to see, I mean, the creativity in Iceland, I think it's just off the charts. And it's, I think it's also very interesting and sorry, I'm going on a tangent, but you know, to see the birth of the music scene there and how influential, you know, the Sugar Cubes and then Bjork as a solo artist kind of, I think, inspired some of the film. It was sort of hand in hand. At the same time, the film world was growing up there. You also see the music and Sigur Rós later um, being sort of renowned internationally. And I think you can see the same thing with the films, but I also just love some of their film. I mean, going back to Children of Nature with Friedrich Thor, um, which was, it's been their Oscar-nominated film of history and just I think the cinema there captures something special about being in Iceland which is the people and their relationship to that land and to nature and you know can have a very quirky sense of humor I mean 101 Reykjavik the early Baltazar Kormakor film is just wonderful and kind of boozy and funny so yeah you're probably about to mention that it's here I can show you John yes it really exists, but um, because of COVID, the del- the launch has been a little bit delayed, but I've written a book called Iceland on Screen. Right. I've always wanted to write something substantial about Iceland, and I used to cover them a lot for Screen International and, you know, just packages of interviews with Icelandic filmmakers and such. But um, very kindly, I pitched this idea to my friend Leve Gudjon Sauter at the Icelandic Film Center and Einar Hansen-Thompson at the Icelandic Film Fund, what's it called, Film in Iceland. Mm-hmm. And they sort of saw the value of doing it. It's like a real book, I swear. Mm-hmm. It's got a hardcover and everything, but they saw the value in doing it as, maybe it's not quite a promotional tool, but it, they intend to give it to people for free as a gift. Oh, I see. So, yeah. So the original intent was when people go to the European Film Awards in Reykjavik in December 2020, they'll get a copy of this book and maybe some, you know, dried lamb jerky or something, you know? And of course that has now been delayed to 2022, but oh gosh, I had such fun working on this, but I mean, I got to talk to pretty much all the living Icelandic filmmakers and it's, a lot of it is very location driven. So again, this is not a sort of academic tome. It's very much like, oh, here's where they shot 101 Reykjavik. You can still go to the bar and here's what Baltazar remembers of shooting there that day. And mm. he said it was one of his worst days on set, in fact, because everybody got really drunk. You know, he co-owned the bar at the time. Right. This is the same bar, um, cafe bar in that Damon Auburn used to be a sort of part collaborator. And, but he was like, it was a nightmare to shoot in there because we knew everybody we were giving them free drinks. So it's, it's, you know, a little bit oral history, a little bit gorgeous photos of Icelandic film locations. And it also includes, you know, things like Game of Thrones and where that shot. And I have to plug that there's a guy, a writer and programmer in Toronto called Steve Gravestock, and he works for Toronto Film Festival, and they have published a book right around pandemic start called A History of Icelandic Film. And that is the, if you really want to know about the films, and it's more of a critical analysis of the films and also sort of an oral history. And that's just wonderful for that kind of book. Mine's the sort of like tourist companion. Mm. 
to that with a lot of pretty pictures and yeah, learning a little bit about some of these Icelandic films. And yeah, I'm just obsessed. I can't wait to go back hopefully later this year. I love, yeah, I loved, I looked to, you, you were kind enough to send me a PDF copy of the text so I could, could look through it and, hmm. and the pictures and everything. And I love the way it was structured where you have the, you know, you basically have a map of Iceland and you can go around and, and see, be a perfect sort of companion where if you were to have a trip to Iceland, that would be the. Yeah. I mean, I think they will give it to sort of tourists and John, have you ever been? No, I haven't. And I'd love to go. Oh, we need to get you an invite to one of these festivals because it just, it's such a magical place and just special people. I just love hearing their accent their outlook on life you know i mean i it's one of the few places in the world i th- hope this is still true there's no starbucks in the whole country you know I'm like sold. It just kind of, i'm sold <laughs> yeah it feels kind of you know it's just a special place and yeah just amazing creativity there and you know like like this year in can lamb i think is a really cool genre film a few years ago at can woman at war and again i was lucky Love enough to visit film. there yeah, Benedict let me visit the set of that film, which was just amazing to even see, oh, I'm forgetting her name, the amazing lead actress, you know, swimming out in the sea in one of those Icelandic woolly jumpers when it's terribly, it's too cold to put my foot in and she's in there. But I'm also like, why do they swim in a woolen jumper? Surely you want like a wetsuit. But yeah, you sort of learn about the quirks uh, of Icelandic people. They love the water. They love to swim. Um, there's been, yeah, just been so many great Icelandic films over the, the decades. So the star's name is Haldora Geharordotir. Wonderful. I think they would be proud of you. Yeah, do you think that's... For that pronunciation. That, that, yes. That is close enough. Yeah, and in writing this new book, I, I did get to go back and watch some of those Icelandic films I had missed, you know, some from the 80s and 90s, and just terrific fun, and they really hold up well. So I do hope people who are tourists might get to go to Iceland, get a copy of this book, go see where Game of Thrones had some sort of Jon Snow bonking scene in some cave <laughs> but also maybe discover like there's a wonderful Icelandic film called Dís about a young woman I think it was from the early 90s maybe and it's just like a really cool portrait of this young woman who's a little bit lost and you can go visit the hotel where she worked as a hotel clerk I love that kind of stuff there was a time a few years ago where it seemed that every every you know it was a Ridley Scott was there Darren Aronofsky was there with Noah Christopher Nolan I think went for oh Nolan's been there at least once or twice yeah and of course you know the Eurovision film with Will Ferrell which I liked I don't I don't not many oh, people I think it's seemed fun. to yeah. oh my gosh it's fun yeah I like bad Will Ferrell films I you know <laughs> I I'm possibly the only person who thought Holmes and Watson was fine you know I did. I missed that one, right. shall we say? Well, yeah. I'm not, I, I'm, I wouldn't put it on your list above a boy and his dog, but um, okay. But yeah. I didn't dislike it. Put it that way. You can put that on the poster. I yes, didn't I didn't it. totally dislike it. <laughs> but you know, it's great to talk about Iceland because I think it is a country which is really, as you say, sort of punching above its weight. I mean, even mm. in something like the football, it's it's competing in major international tournaments and it's got a population which is a bit 
I don't know, is it the population of Manchester, I guess? Yeah, yeah is it what, 300,000 or something? Yeah, well, well, a lot less than Manchester, <laughs> a little bit yeah. of yeah. Manchester. Um, but I should also mention their, their football goalie is a filmmaker, of course. Everybody knows everybody in Iceland. I, I just love the little interconnections. And, you know, you can start talking to somebody and they say, oh, I really love this filmmaker. Oh, yeah, and he's also my brother-in-law. It's like, <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, of course he is. I, but I quite like that. And yet there's so much creativity in it not a huge i hope sense of competition mm. there i mean although you know they they have a great icelandic film center that does fund the local films but you know and this is when i'm going back to my manitoba tax credit brain they don't have enough funding to let every filmmaker every year who wants to have a great film made make their film that year sometimes even if they like the project they might have to wait a year or two you know there are benefits to being in such a small country but also probably some challenges for them was um I'm, I'm hopefully I'm right here. Wasn't there a film outside of uh, coming out of Iceland uh, a couple of years ago showed in Locarno called Echo that was like a beautiful Runer Runerson film. Yes, um, yes, yeah. You know Runerson Runer's a filmmaker I've been you know lucky enough to meet, and he knows the best bars in Reykjavik. If you go, he'll take you to the old school non-tourist bars. Just a wonderful filmmaker and it made quite, I, in fact, I went way up to the West Fjords to see sparrows being shot, which won the big prize at San Sebastian where right. I work. So this is all, you know, tying in nicely. But Echo, I think is one of the most special, I think it's probably his most special work. You know, it's, as you know, it's kind of like vignettes and it almost sounds like a Roy Anderson film, but it's totally not. Um, these little vignettes set during a holiday period in Iceland. And I just found it so beautiful. And I think not enough people have seen that film. I think he was on movie in some territories, but yeah, just it sounds like you were a fan of it because it's just sublime the the filmmaking here. And but I know, for instance, that was a struggle for Runer to get all the funding for that film because people wanted a sort of another narrative, coming of age drama. They expected that from him, and he was like, "No, I want to do this." And you know, it can be hard to get a film like that. Yeah, it's it's one of those. I mean, the word poetic is sometimes lobbed about mm. a little bit too 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 readily, but that film definitely deserves it because it's got some beautiful striking images and it's as you say, it's like a mosaic of all these different little tiles. But they're so. I mean, he's such a visual stylist as well. I mean, it's. I but I found that film. I found myself sobbing. I think. At the end, I was lucky enough to see it on a big screen and yeah, just sobbing at the, just having been the accumulation of all these little, as you say, tiles, you know, mm -hmm. at the end. And I just, oh, sort of devastated me. Um, yeah, gorgeous film that everybody should seek out. Wendy, we always ask, or I always ask, I keep I keep using the royal we in this podcast. I'm not sure why. I, I like I like to- It's your whole team I like to Exactly. I like to create the illusion that my people will call your people. I'd, I'd like to ask you for a recommendation for a film book for, for our listeners. Some, something that, that either has influenced you or that you've just, just loved, that you just yeah. enjoyed reading. I'm going to go for such a bleeding obvious and I'm, I haven't listened to all the episodes. I don't know if people have said it yet, but it's David Thompson. Nope. Nobody said this one. Yet. I just think, okay. So it is the David Thompson's biographical dictionary of film. And I use it all the time. I just, I think it's, it's a wonderful resource. I just think he's a, he's a, such a great thinker and writer about film. It's very, he's very succinct. Obviously, it's a sort of dictionary, it, but even in a very succinct sort of blurb about a certain director or a certain actor, I think he can capture a lot. 
And, you know, sometimes I don't totally agree with him or if, you know, I've got his book, I'm looking at my bookshelf, Have You Seen, which is about a thousand different films. And yeah, sometimes I don't agree with his exact take on a film or, but I just think he's, you know, he's a legend and uh, we're lucky to still have him. And yeah, you know, I think it's not a the biographical dictionary. It's not something you would read start to finish, but it, and I don't mean this in the Citizen Canine way, but it would be a great book to have in the toilet, in the living room, somewhere you just want to read a few pages or you see that White Dog is going to be on TV and you want to see what David has to say about Sam Fuller. And I just think, you know, it's such a resource and I love that it's not online. Mm. I love it's not a Wikipedia entry. I just, yeah, it's in its own way, it is inspired. Because I was going to say, does it feel kind of like just a reference book? It, I mean, of course, it is a reference book, but I think it's more than that. And yeah, I really, really recommend that one. Brilliant. Yeah, I I love David Tom, uh, Thomas Thompson. Thompson. Without a P for anybody Googling him, David Thompson. I yeah. read the the big screen a couple of uh, a couple of years ago, which is really good. And I've got I haven't read that one. So I haven't even read all this stuff. I just yeah, need to. <laughs> he did a book that um I've got on my Kindle sort of lined up to read as well, called Suspects. Have you did you hear about that one? No, I haven't. I'm gonna write that down. Well, it's it's a really interestingly different approach because it's essentially a series of almost like short stories which is basically assuming that everybody in in the cinema world as in the characters like rick from casablanca and joe cairo or, or all these different people all live in the actual world and he just produces biographies of sort of what they did before the film what they did after the film and who uh, they interacted with who appears in another film and it's sort of it's just a really interestingly original expansion of that sort of filmic universe that sounds really wonderful yeah i mean he he does have a very i mean it seems like a very ordered mind but also quite a creative way to look at things we think we might know Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I was, you know, uh, when I we were talking right at the very beginning of our conversation about looking at films. I, I mean, you talked, you were saying earlier, you don't write academic tomes and stuff, but don't know if we've had anybody on who does so far. I mean, we've, it's all, we're all, especially, especially I think a, a certain generation, I think maybe the generation that is coming after us have all been to film college and study our cultural studies and stuff like that. But I think most of us have come to it from a, you know, I come from a more literature-based things and, and, you know, talking to other people, they seem to come from slightly different angles, you know. But yeah, anyway, it's a, I love that original way of looking at something, all, you know, whether it's dogs or whether it's short stories or whether it, whatever it might be. Yeah, thank you for giving time to me and my, and my little doggies of Citizen Canine. Um, yeah, because I think some people hear about the book and they're just like, Phew. That's for kids. Um, and, you know, that wasn't the intention, but it was intended to be fun. No, so, it's, it's definitely um, fun. fun oh, it's, it's amazing yeah. fun. And it's got some really good stuff in. And it's also made me really want to go back and watch Lassie, uh, Lassie Come Home because I've... Oh my I've God. Never seen I mean, that film and it's got Elizabeth Taylor in it and it's got yeah. Roddy McDowell. Yeah. And as you watch it, look at that dog's shiny coat because, as you would learn in the book, you know, the they originally they had a different dog to play Lassie and it wasn't delivering. So they had this, I, think, I guess this dog Pal was a stunt dog or like a double or something. And they let Pal try the river scene. And it worked out. But fun fact that 
Powell was a male dog because they shot the film in the summer. And in the summer, the, the female collies tend to shed more fur and they wanted this full coat. So, you know, the dog, the title should have been Laddie, I guess, if we're being... Um, <laughs> For being literal, but yeah, Lassie was a boy. I love the line that you you quote the director as saying something that uh, Pal went into the river, Pal, and came out Lassie. You know, it's like exactly. It's so dramatic, and I I love that. Yeah, I think there was a whole biography lit, written at the time of, of Lassie. Yeah, again, one of those like Ren Ten Ten. It was just what a money maker, wow. um, Pal, and and his descendants who bring us back full circle to one I met, you know, at the AFM, <laughs> who would have thought, you know. Amazing. Listen, thank you very much, Wendy, for joining us. And, and thank you for giving us your time and recommended Citizen Canine and to look forward to, the, what's the name of the Icelandic cinema book? It's just called Iceland on Screen. Okay. Uh, but yeah, we look forward to launching that. Thank you, John, for not only talking to me, but for doing this whole series of, I've really enjoyed dipping into to some of the episodes and look forward to hearing from more of my peers. It's just fascinating. Thank you. So that was our conversation on Citizen Canine, Dogs on Film, and uh, Icelandic cinema. Loads of stuff we covered there. A nice eclectic subject. I think you'll agree. Wendy's recommended film book was David Thompson's biographical dictionary of film. Thanks as ever goes to Elliot Atkins, who provided the music for the episode. Ali Harwood, who helps out with the art. If you enjoyed it, please do like, subscribe, please, uh, if you haven't already. And uh, until next week... Take care. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.